I'll read every legal doc- document cover to cover. Really? Every word of every legal document cover to cover. Why? I mean, that, that's your leverage in any deal. Yeah. I mean, to me, it, the intersection of, you know, what your documents say and business is where you're going to be able to be successful. Yeah. And I, I want to know every single thing because I think a lot of people don't and a lot gets missed and then you don't know it until there's a problem. Yeah. For me, it's being able to make sure there's things in those documents that address any and every scenario that I can think of that could go wrong, that I know we have you know, some sort of downside protection or we know what we're getting into. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Nishant, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming to Fort Worth. Can we just start with your background and kind of what brought you to today? Yeah, for sure. So I built my career um, at Mackinac Partners. Mackinac is a restructuring turnaround firm. Been there for about 15 years now. And it really helped build me into who I am today. Yeah. Incredible experiences, industries that I never thought I'd get into. Everything from funeral stationery to timeshare. And that's what's kind of made me into who I am today, which is, you know, looking at opportunistic investing, all with an operational angle. Yeah. And um, that's taken me into investments in in restaurants, timeshare, cannabis, you name it. So how did you get into Mackinac? Because the story of kind of getting there was kind of cool. That's a great story. So I was born and raised in Dubai, came here uh, to go to college, went to Purdue, and fully intended on going back home and living an easy life. Uh, my last semester had the opportunity to do an internship with a local business in Indiana and took the opportunity. It was a roof and truss manufacturing business. Didn't realize at the time that I was going to be working in summer in a factory on a factory floor, loading lumber all day. Did that, had the opportunity to come back and work full-time as a financial analyst. Took that opportunity. And then within two years, the company brought Mac and I in to help prepare them for a sale to a strategic buyer. Uh, went through that process. I supported the Mackinac team, worked with them day in and day out. At the end of that, had the opportunity again to either stay with the acquirer or move over to Mackinac. Loved the idea of traveling back then. Yeah. And you know, well, I could be a consultant. I can go live in hotels and <laughs> eat at nice restaurants, all of which I hate doing today. Um, <laughs> so that was the reason I joined. Uh, but and I've be, you know, been there for 15 years and it's been incredible. I love it. Before we get into that, I just want to ask a question. So you're from Dubai, which for Americans, like every time I, I see those like before and afters of Dubai, it's like it was nothing. And now it's the biggest oh, yeah. city in the world. Did you were you living through the like the, the growth of Dubai? Yeah. When we when I left was in 99. OK. And it was starting. Okay. That's when the islands were starting to being built. The palm was being built. So we had seen that build up. Yeah. Uh, but it was really once we left that it started to accelerate. And how's Dubai funded? Like, what? how did this oasis just come out of nowhere? It's oil and tourism. Okay. I mean, 
Dubai's done an incredible job of focusing on tourism yeah. revenue more so than being solely dependent on oil. Got it. Like a lot of the neighboring countries. And they've just built like buildings everywhere. I mean, the vision for Dubai has been incredible. Yeah. I remember in high school, something reading something about Dubai 2030, the vision for Dubai 2030. And if you look at it, they've not just met that vision, they've exceeded that vision in every respect. It's unbelievable. That's cool. All right, getting back into business. So you go to Mackinac. Describe kind of what Mackinac is and what they do. Sure. So Mackinac, pure restructuring turnaround firm. So what does that mean? You go into businesses that are struggling, either they're struggling because they're operationally challenged or they're struggling because they have a balance sheet that just doesn't work. Yep. Nine times out of 10, you're going in on the behalf of private equity sponsors. So we've worked with numerous private equity sponsors that believe that, that don't believe the management team has the wherewithal to turn the business around or the management team needs additional bandwidth to turn the business around or expertise. And that's when they bring us in. So we'd either partner with management teams, replace management teams to help stabilize businesses, create value, restore value, and then replace ourselves. Were there certain sectors that you were focused on? For sure. Did a little bit in the manufacturing world, started out in the manufacturing world, given the fact that I was at Banks Lumber, knew the manufacturing piece of it very well. Started in manufacturing, manufacturing moved into uh, leisure and hospitality, more specifically timeshare. And then from timeshare moved into restaurants and the restaurant business has been incredible over the last call it 10 years. I, I want to talk about timeshares and restaurants, but let's spend like five or 10 minutes. Like I'm a client and I'm, things are going sideways. I call Mackinac, Nishant, we need help. What's like the process you go through is if I'm a distressed company, like what are y'all doing to help me out? The first thing is, I mean, I, I get this question a lot, and especially from sponsors, like the first question, even in a pitch, like, what are you going to do to help the situation? Yeah. And it's near impossible to answer that question without knowing what the underlying problem is. Okay. So our process is being able to go into these businesses, not just look at the symptoms, but understand the underlying problem. What What's causing the issue? Yeah. To be able to determine, is that fixable? If so, how long does it take to get fixed? How much does it cost to fix it? to be able to provide a detailed you know, strategic value creation plan on what the process is, what the initiatives are, how long it's gonna take to stabilize that business. So oftentimes what we'll tell clients is, let's just do an assessment. Let's do an assessment to understand what the issue is and then how we fix that issue. And I think oftentimes it's easy to tell people what needs to be done, Yeah, going that next level on how to do it and then having the wherewithal to actually do it is what differentiates us. So do most people that come to you even know what their problems are? They don't know what the problem is. They know the business isn't performing. Right. The problem is not declining sales. The problem is not declining EBITDA. That's a symptom of the problem. Right. So I think being able to, you know, tease that out and differentiate that, this is a symptom, but what's causing it? That's truly the problem. How do we address that problem? So how quickly can Mackinac get to a hear the root issues of what's going on? Does that happen in like a week, a month, a year? It's really a 60-day process. Okay. And you know that, that's something I've learned through my career, how important it is to listen. Yeah. It's 
be able to sit across the table with management teams who know that business better than we'll ever know that business, being humble enough to, you know, realize that and work with them to understand what is the core issue, what's caused the issue. Did we stray too far away from our core identity or our core attributes? And if we did, can we pull that back? Or have we just not evolved while the rest of the world around us has, you know, moved on? So being able to have those open dialogues and conversations with management, it doesn't happen immediately because management teams are typically a little nervous when they see, you know, a firm like ours come into a situation. But being able to talk to them as an operator, and that's what we pride ourselves on being like, we're operators at heart. Sure, we can restructure a balance sheet. It's not, it's not rocket science. The hard part is how do you fix a business? So being able to talk to management teams as an operator to uncover what the true issue is, that's key. And that takes, you know, a good 30 to 60 day process. Are you guys given full reign to talk to not just management, but can you go to like the floor of the man? Can you talk to anybody in the organization or you typically have to stay at the top? No, it's pretty, it really depends on the situation and how sensitive the situation is. Yeah. Uh, but most times, you know, management teams, after you break down that initial barrier, they want the help. Yeah, they want the support. They understand they either don't have the expertise or they don't have the bandwidth. Yeah, and that's our role. Our role yep. is not to replace anybody. Our role is to help make them successful. And okay, so maybe you just answered the question: When you've diagnosed the problems, is there a? I don't want to ask a loaded question, but is there a percentage of how often the current management team in place can right the ship, or is it usually like, hey, we got to bring in a new team? You know, it's 50-50. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of times management teams are fatigued. By the time we get into a situation, yeah, you know, they've been beat up quite a bit. They've tried a lot. It hasn't worked. And they just, you know, they're worn out. So I think you know, a lot of times it's more that that drives them out than anything else. So maybe we've touched on a little bit, but what are the reasons why companies go into distress? It, it, it's a great question. I, I think it comes down to a couple of things. Yeah. At least in my experience, it's like three things that I can break it down into. One is I think oftentimes companies stray too far away from what's made them successful. It's aspirational. They want to go chase a different customer set. They want to elevate their brand. They want to do something that might not be core to their identity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's incredibly confusing to consumers. Yeah. That's one that I've seen. The other one is the flip side where they don't evolve enough. They stuck in their ways. They know this works, but the whole world around you is moving forward and you're not. And I think you saw that, you know, the best example of that is a blockbuster, right? Who didn't go to a blockbuster, but Netflix came around and just blew them them away, made them irrelevant. Um, And then the third thing, which, you know, is, is hard to sometimes bring up is I do think that capital providers out there that are just overbearing and it puts management teams in a really difficult position where they're more focused on pleasing and appeasing capital providers as opposed to running a business. So when you say overbearing, meaning like they buy the business and they come in with this fresh set of rules and it's just kind of too much. Yeah, I I think there are capital providers out there that suffocate management teams. Yeah. I think you need to be able to trust who's running your company. And if you can, then you need to replace them. But you can, you know, you, you can babysit them all the way. So being able to 
retain, recruit the right management team, retain that team, incentivize that team. That's what capital providers should be focused on, not, you know, telling management teams how to run the business. I want to I want to go a little deeper here because we're hitting the boomer generation. There's a lot of businesses that are about to sell to private equity that have been family run businesses forever. What does suffocating like really mean? Like what are things that capital providers do wrong that really start squeezing the business that's kind of unnecessary? I think one of the things is capital providers are amazing at structuring businesses. They're amazing at, you know, being able to finance and put put, you know, strategy in place. But there's a big difference between strategy and, you know, structuring a business and operating a business. So how do capital providers bridge that gap to give them a level of comfort, they hire, retain, or have on payroll operating partners. I think operating partners can be hugely beneficial to companies, but on the flip side can be detrimental to companies, where an operating partner goes in there and again, tells management what to do, as opposed to being a resource and helping them in doing it. And if I'm the CEO of a company, the last thing I wanna do is have to prepare and spend a day or a week with an operating partner as opposed to my team running the business. So I think it's overcompensating for capital providers' lack of confidence in management teams that just accelerates the problem. And are most of these companies given a forewarning like, hey, this operator is about to bust through the doors and start telling you what to do? Or it's kind of like, hey, this is all going to be great. And then the day of closing, it's like, bam, here they are. It's it's absolutely the latter. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolute. Like when, every, when, when they're dating, everything is great. Um, and once the deal is done, it's like, all right, you're going to have so-and-so there to help with HR. You have so-and-so there to help with accounting. We need these reports, which is fine if it's done the right way. Yeah, It needs to be collaborative. Management teams need to know. Management teams need to want to pick up the phone and call an operating partner, yeah. not be dodging calls when those calls are coming in. Yeah, And I think it's all about how it's presented and honestly, the maturity of the management team as well but how it's communicated from the sponsor. Do you, have you seen like a lot of family businesses that were excellent businesses for years and as soon as they sell to private equity, it starts kind of crumbling? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But then I've seen the flip side as well. Right. You know, great, uh, you know, family owned businesses that might not have the structure that's needed or the strategic angle that's needed or the access to capital that's needed to take them to the next level. I've seen those do incredibly well. But on the flip side, I've seen big capital come into family-owned businesses and there's such a conflict in culture and how things are done that it's a, you know, it's a difficult bridge to gap. All right. So we're through like the first 60 days, you've kind of diagnosed what's going on. Then what happens? Then it's really about building out a plan. Okay. And the one thing that, you know, I've been very focused on is what I call strategic value creation plans. Okay. And these plans, again, I keep coming back to are not what you need to do, certainly that's a part of it, but it's how you do it and what are all, in specificity, what are the initiatives that need to take place to be able to realize either the revenue growth or the EBITDA growth. Okay. Who are the responsible parties? What's the timeline? What's the cost? So these strategic value creation plans address every aspect of a business, top line to profitability, to systems, to HR, team building, culture, et cetera. And you go through those plans, and I'll give you an example. Okay. Restaurant business. Okay. One of the one of the 
big revenue streams and if they've gets continue to grow year in and year out is catering. Right. So a lot of companies that you go into the we want to build a catering business. Okay, great. That's an initiative. Well, that's an initiative, but within that initiative, there are about 50 different tasks that need to be done to make sure that that initiative is a successful initiative. Everything, what's the radius around the restaurant that you're going to cater to? What's the menu going to look like? What's the packaging going to look like? All that level of specificity is where I think a lot of companies go, you know, make mistakes. Okay. They don't go into that level of specificity. So for us, in building out these plans, you go into that detail, every one of those tasks that hit a different department or a different, have a different sense of responsibility, a person that's responsible for it, we build that out. So every day when people come in, they know exactly what they're doing. They know what the focus is. They know what their timeline is. And you have a high degree of success. Do you need to get management to like give you the thumbs up or, okay, we're going to do that? It's incredibly important to do, to build these plans out in conjunction with management teams. Yeah. Because you want their buy-in. Yep. This is not us telling management teams what to do. It's us working with management teams to come up with what needs to be done and carrying the water and doing the heavy lifting and building out these plans. So that once you think about it on the front end, then you're just executing. You're not trying to constantly think about what needs to be done every day. You've done that on the front end and then you execute. Do you need to pivot sometimes? Absolutely. But all the heavy lifting is done on the front end. So what's like the typical engagement with a company? Six to 12 months. Okay. Yeah. So six, 30, 60 days to diagnose it, implement the plan, and you should start seeing results. Exactly. And as soon as they're kind of lifting back off, y'all are on to the next thing. Exactly. And oftentimes we'll still continue to have a board role or just be there for management if they need it. But we pull out a a bunch of the resources because these companies need to be able to operate on their own. We've come in there, we've helped them build a plan, help them begin the execution of a plan. And at that point, it's, you know, take the training wheels off, let this management team run on their own. Are y'all retained kind of post engagement to kind of monitor, you know, two years out, three years out, or once you're out, you're out? No, there's a, there's a lot of continuity, yeah. either from a board perspective or just working directly with the, the management team. Okay, so this is just a dumb question, but you know, you think about these big restaurant chains that have all these people and they must know everything. And then we just go through like this catering example, which I know we kind of simplified it. Yeah. But when you hear it, it's like, well, duh. Why do companies like, are they, do they fail in spite of themselves? Like, how is it not so clear to these great restaurant executives that have been in the industry forever? You know, I think it's, I think it's a couple of things. One is it's a lot of work on the front end to break every one of these initiatives down into granular detail okay. to heighten the probability of success. So I think a lot of CEOs, a lot of executives, they rely on some, they come up, they know the idea, they know what needs to be done, but then they hand it off to someone else to do it. I, I just think you have to be hands-on. Yeah. And that's, that's, been you know my style all along and and it's something i need to caution myself on is not to be too hands-on yeah right because you don't want to be caught in the weeds and you have to be able to trust your team but being able to build the way i've figured it out where it works is building it out together on the front end and then letting them execute and then being able to manage through that strategic valuation plan as to where we are and keep everyone on task but not getting into you know, the business on a day-to-day basis with every department. Right. 
you ever go in and see a business, you're like, sorry, guys, we can't help you. Like, absolutely. It's a dying industry or and you'll just kind of tell them like, you need to shut the business down. Absolutely. Yeah. For us, it's all about your reputation. You don't have much of a reputation as a turnaround guy if you don't turn things around. Yep. And we're really, I've always been really thoughtful about the engagements we take. And that's a really difficult conversation to have with a sponsor or a lender who's put a bunch of money into a business. Say, this is not a business that we believe we can fix. Yep. Um, and it's for a couple of reasons. It's either there's some mass, massive macro shift or the cost and the time to do it is not worth what you're going to get out of it. Or you've just disappointed a consumer for way too long and there's just no coming back. Yep. And that's why that diagnosis phase is incredibly important both for the client, but also for us. Yep. You know, it's again, it's by reputation. Is the way Macanon makes money through fees or do they get like a piece of the upside if it turns around and it's super profitable or both? It's it's both, but 90% is on a fee basis. Yeah. Your view of the world is awesome because you know what a terrible deal looks like, which is actually maybe more important than knowing what a really great deal looks like, but you also know what a good deal looks like. So let's kind of move into what that experience has led you to do. And maybe let's start with the company that you built, the timeshare business. How sure. did that come about and what was it? And Yeah, that was that was just an awesome experience. So 2008, 2009, the world's you know falling apart and I didn't know anything about timeshare. And how old um, were you at this time? I was 27. Okay. Eight. Um, <laughs> didn't know anything about timeshare. Got you know, dropped into Laguna Hills, California at a timeshare company and didn't know if timeshare was one word or two words <laughs> and had to figure it out pretty quickly. But thankfully, I'm a good listener. Got into it, started to understand the business and started to, you know, I was really fascinated by the business because, you know, on the face of it, it doesn't have a great reputation. Yeah. But it's just a phenomenal business model. I mean, it's really a finance and real estate company. Yeah. Right? So you build these resorts and then you you sell through them and you sell you know every room 52 times right? because everyone buys a week. And so the revenue model's incredible. And then because a single individual can't pay $20,000 out of pocket, they need to get financed. So then the timeshare company finances that. So you have this consumer receivable portfolio you have your revenue model on the operating side. It's it's an incredible business. So learned a ton about it. I was there for about three years, helped stabilize that business, helped manage liquidity of that business, understood every aspect of it because it was you know falling apart and then eventually sold that business to Diamond Resorts. Once we sold the business and through my time at the company, the one observation I had was with all of these resorts, there are thousands of resorts across the country. All of these resorts were repossessing defaulted inventory. But resorts very much like a condominium building, once they hit a certain threshold, the developer is out of the mix and an HOA board runs the resort. HOA boards don't have the wherewithal to resell foreclosed on inventory. Yeah. So I started seeing that. So what would happen was these resorts would be sitting on all this defaulted inventory, which means they're not getting HOA dues, which means they can't upkeep the resort. So following that chain, it's like, well, there's got to be a way for them to monetize that inventory. So I talked to the CEO at 
the company we were advising and he was with, with the sale, he was moving on. And Sassman was like, well, what do these resorts do? He's like, well, they're kind of limited. He said, what's gonna, probably going to happen is someone's going to come in with a bunch of capital, buy that defaulted inventory, and then they'll resell it. So I was like, well, we don't have a bunch of capital, but we do have you know, the wherewithal to build a sales and marketing platform to resell this inventory. So we, from scratch, it's never been done in the industry, we built a model where we went to the resorts, we got their, their defaulted inventory, get, got them to agree to give us the defaulted inventory on a just-in-time basis, and then we started to sell through that inventory. We started with one resort, we ended up with thousands of resorts because we were the only way for them to get a paying owner back into the system. So I'm a resort, people have bought timeshares, they have their, they've financed them, everything goes to hell in a handbasket, I can no longer pay off my timeshare, resort takes it back, they hire your firm to now say, look, you don't have to go sell all these to some distressed buyer, we're gonna be the company that helps you resell these again so you can keep ownership and keep going. That's exactly right. We were their sales and marketing arm. So we built it up from, you know, me and my partner, Andy. It was us two doing everything to where we had five offices. We had over 100 employees. We built an incredible business and then we sold it to Interval International. I exited, Andy stayed on, and then Interval just a few years ago got bought by Marriott. This is like fascinating because it's just you're multidimensional in a lot of ways. But okay, you see these, you see this opportunity. Had you ever built a sales platform before, or it was just obvious that you needed to build one? It was. Ob- I knew how the sales and marketing platforms worked because of the client I was with. Right. So I understood that very well. And Andy's background was in sales and marketing. When I think of a sales platform for a timeshare, I think of going to the mall and seeing that like Corvette sitting in the lobby and you sign up the thing and they'll do a drawing. You get a call that's like drive to Tyler, Texas, and uh, you get a free Corvette and you you show up and it's it's a whole like sales of. So what are we all doing differently? That was it. That you invented I mean, that? That was I didn't invent that. I we, we <laughs> just piggybacked off of that. But our focus was not to be that person in the mall. Our yeah. focus was because you can buy those leads. Those are just leads, yeah. right? It's all lead generation. So you yeah. can buy those leads. Uh, we would buy those leads. We would reach out to those people. We would get them to come into the, uh, the sales office and go through the, the pitch. So we were more on the sales side than on the marketing side, but we had enough of a reach into marketing to be able to you know, get access to those leads. And the one lesson I learned, which will stick with me forever, I remember, you know, a lot had gone into building the business and just getting any business started takes a ton of work. Got the business started. I remember we opened our first sales office in, in Las Vegas and which is, you know, timeshare Mecca and um, <laughs> all excited. We go there. And I, well, I didn't go there the first week. So I learned two things, actually. I didn't go there the first week and, you know, sales reports were terrible. I mean, we had sold like one timeshare and we had, you know, call it 50, 60 people, like people come through. So I wasn't sure what was going on. So the second week I was like, I got to go there, see what's going on. Is it the salespeople? Is it the product? Like, what are we doing wrong? So went there and just went there as a regular consumer going through 
going through the motions. So you go through and then when people were leaving, I asked Scott, I'm like, you know, what do you think? And the first thing the, the guy said to me, he's like, sounds great, but it's got to be a scam. It's like, why do you say it's got to be a scam? Like those timeshare that they're selling originally sold for 20000 How could they, how, how's it possible that they're selling it for $7,500? It's a scam. And that's when the light bulb went off. I'm like, perception is everything. Yeah. And literally the next week we changed the pricing and we never looked back. So what, what, tell me what you did there. You left it at 7,500 or you took oh, it back no. to 20? No, we took it up to, we, we didn't take it to 20 because then we'd just be competing with the big resorts. Right. So we took it to between 10 to 12 and a half and we never looked back. And we could have, we had a good narrative around why. So people understood. So what I learned through that experience was perception is incredibly important. And the second thing is, you know what? If you're running a business, you need to be, you need to have your boots on the ground. You can run it from somewhere else and expect things to work. You need to be there. You need to understand what consumers are saying. You need to be in the flow to know what you need to fix and what you need to address. That is literally the thought I had. Like the CEO that sits in his ivory tower suite and never has an idea what the customers are really up to. Like you just showing up that day in the office and hearing that one thing turn the whole business around. Changed everything for us. And, and that's, so what did you do as soon as that happened? Like, what was like the next week you called your partner? Or- oh, at, next week, like the next hour. It's <laughs> like, I think we have a problem. Uh, we're just, you know, we've priced this wrong. Yeah. I learned a lot through that deal. And one of the, one of the other pieces that really resonated with me and it stuck with me for a while is how important it is to have the right partners in any deal that you do. And with Andy, we, complemented each other incredibly well. We stayed in each in, in our lanes, but never, you know, we were never bashful to ask each other about something that we were focused on. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was our responsibility. And we listened. We listened about, you know, what what do we think needs to be done to help the business? Good mis- good, you know, good things and bad things, mistakes that we made and how do we address those mistakes? So to me, partnership in anything is incredibly important because I think it's it's the difference between being successful and you know having major issues. It's so funny because the the timeshare business just in general, like you always hear people that own them and they're like, I can't get out of them. Like I just want to sell. Is there a business to be had just being able to sell your damn timeshare like easily? I think it's like the number one thing I think about when I when I hear the timeshare industry is like once you get it, you're never getting out of it. Is that is that true? It's partially true. Um, Is that a bad thing? People's lives change. Yeah. People's lives change. And when they change, they want to get out of it. Um, Now, most times those people have already paid off their timeshare. So the only thing that they're paying is their HOA dues. Um, Oftentimes the timeshare companies will take it back because if you think about it, it depends on where we are in the the economic cycle. cycle. But if a time for a timeshare company, if you, Chris, come to me and say, Say I'm a timeshare company. He's like, you know, kids have all graduated. We don't do the vacations like we used to do. It's just me and my wife. Like, I don't want this timeshare anymore. Sure. Most times they'll give you, they'll, you know, they want to maintain keeping that HOA coming in. But for them, if they're tight on inventory, they'll take that back in a heartbeat because they just resell it. Yeah, yeah. I just, I'm, I'm like laughing in my head thinking of Las Vegas being the timeshare capital of the world. Oh. Like that is America. 
to a T. Absolutely. Show up to the gambling haven of the world, buy a timeshare for a week. <laughs> Here's a cocktail. <laughs> Let's talk timeshare. <laughs> and it's a good business. Um, it's huge. All right. How did you know it was time to sell that? So you you were like Mackinac was a client of Mackinac. Then you spun in and started it. Was there a game plan like, look, we're going to get to this size and then we're going to exit? It was there was never we knew who our potential exit opportunities were. And from the very beginning, and I, I, I have this you know, mindset with everything that I do. If I'm building a business, I want to know who I'm going to exit to. Yeah. And you don't build a business exclusively for that potential, you know, exit partner, but you definitely keep that in mind with right. everything that you're doing. And that's what we did every step of the way because we knew we were building a product that was going to be helpful to an interval international. So there was never a timeline on when we wanted to exit. But for me, with there were so many competing things going on in my life. And I was like, well, I want to be able to take capital off the table to be able to reinvest and do other things that I want to be doing. It was a great opportunity to do that. Everything kind of lined up. So you know, jumped all over it. it. Was it hard? Absolutely. Yeah. I remember the night before we were supposed to like sign, I was having dinner with my wife and I'm like, ah, I just don't know. We built this from scratch, from nothing. You know, it was a 12 page PowerPoint presentation, you know, funded with cobbling together dollars that, you know, we had and friends and family. And it's like, Wow, to be to walk away from that, that was hard, but um, it was definitely the right decision. All right. I want to get into what you did after that, but you you just kind of you've said a few things that I think when I have a lot of people on this podcast that are entrepreneurs or business owners, they've like followed their passion and they like love what they're doing. And you've kind of built a career on like, look, it's business. Like you didn't grow up like dreaming to start a sales, but you have a very good filter for like. And, and I know we're going to get to this. And you said something in our conversations leading up where you just said, you know, the next three to five years, I'm going to work on this because I can't think of anything that's more ROI on my time than this. Yeah. Maybe just tell the listener, like, you can be really successful in business and you don't have to find the thing that you just like love. Like, it's okay to be in business. And how do you think about that? Like, when I think of starting a sales company for busted timeshares, my first thought is like, I want to do that. Like I want a hole in my head, but you sit here and you're like, no, there's huge opportunity and money there. And I'm comfortable spending three to five years working on it. Like speak to that just a little bit. It's not just the money. It's, it's really about, and, and it is a passion. The passion is to be successful at yeah. what you do and being able to do it with the people that you like. Yeah. Right. That for me, that's the most important thing. Yeah. I, I'm there for some things. It doesn't, the in, it's not the industry specifically that I'm passionate about. It's who I'm working with and a pure desire to be successful. Yeah. If, if you're going to do something, do it to the best of your ability. Yeah. That, that's been drilled into my head from the time I was a child. And it's more focused on that than anything else. And really understanding, being logical and thinking through, you know, what is the highest and best use of my time? Okay. And then build a team around that, have it be focused on it and commit to it. Yep. Like my whole, it, the three things, and it's somewhat of a cliche, but everything that I do, it's like honesty, trust, and commitment. Yep. Be honest about the situation, good, bad, ugly, whatever it is, be honest about the situation. Trust the people around you, your team, to be able to execute 
and then commit to doing so. And that's been my mantra forever. I bring that to every situation I'm involved with, and that's the passion. Yeah, It's not specific to an industry. D- define real quick again the difference between honesty and trust. Honesty is being able to be to truly put on the table what's working, what's not, not hiding behind anything. Just be honest about the situation. Yeah. You know, and trust is knowing that you've built a team that you can trust and you, you trust everybody to do their job and you don't have to second guess anybody. Yep. And that's the culture I try and set with every organization. It's like honesty, trust, and commitment. Yep. All right, let's move into kind of the restaurant industry. So you sell this business. You're currently the CEO of Macaroni Grill. Right. Uh, but was there something you did before that, before you got into the restaurant industry or? Yeah, I mean, uh, jumped right from timeshare into restaurants okay. and restructured a number of different restaurant companies. Um, Logan's Roadhouse, Real Max, Garden Fresh, the list goes on. But again, just being opportunistic and, you know, was opportunistic in timeshare and then did a bunch of restaurant deals. And the one thing I saw with the restaurant deals is there are a lot of legacy brands whether it's the Logan's Roadhouse, whether it's the Macaroni Grill, there are a lot of legacy brands that still have incredibly loyal following and they still do massive revenue dollars, but they're not that profitable. Yeah. And they're not that profitable because over the years, you know, margins have shrunk, right? Minimum wage has gone up, commodities have gone up. You can't pass all of that along to a consumer. Right. So I developed a thesis in late 2017 where which was really focused on you know a roll up of the industry specifically legacy brands in the industry okay and it was being able to it, it's pretty straightforward be able to identify brands that deserve to exist brands that believe you believe you can turn around um, and I think you have to be really really disciplined operators have a knack of believing they can fix everything you simply cannot. Um, to being very disciplined and understanding what you can fix and then being able to build a platform. And I define platform as people, systems, and process. Build a platform and bolt on these, bolt these legacy brands onto that platform. So you can, you know, rationalize GNA. You have one, you know, infrastructure that everything is operating off of and you can be, you can, you know, do really well. It's Darden's done it. Brinker's done it. You know, Tillman's done it. It, it's it's a brilliant strategy. So came up with this investment thesis, 16 or 17, went out and talked to a number of different private equity sponsors about it. And there was a lot of momentum behind it. And then had Macaroni Grill as an opportunity. I'm the second largest shareholder in Macaroni Grill and Sullivan Steakhouse. And we believe that was the right platform for us to use to go do the roll-up strategy. So, so, it, so you raised a fund or a... a I, just, I, I partnered with a relationship, Raven Capital, that I've known for, for a long, long time. And these were all the groups I was talking to about doing this. And when Macaroni Grill came up, it was perfect with Raven. We went in and um, we acquired it. We've completely revamped and built out the platform. We stabilized the business. We turned that business around. Then within a year of doing that, we acquired Sullivan's Steakhouse. Sullivan's was a carve out from Del Frisco's Grill, not not Del Frisco's Grill, but just Del Frisco's. And Tillman got Del Frisco's. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, we took a year before Tillman's transaction was when we took out 
Sullivan Steakhouse from that. We carved it out. We bolted that on, turned the, you know, turned that business around. It's crushing it. So do you still own Sullivan's and Macro? Yeah, I own 40%. All right. Well, you don't get out that quickly. We're going like details here. So one, how did Macaroni Grill, how how was that deal even sourced? Just kind of in the market, they're struggling, they're about to sell or? No, this is this is the symbiotic relationship with Mackinac. Mm-hmm. So it was originally a Mackinac engagement. Okay. And the mandate, very similar to every Mackinac engagement, was come in, stabilize the business, turn the business around. And the ownership group at that point was like, just turn around and get us out. We just want to get out. This is not our core business. (laughs) So it's like, okay. So (laughs) came in, stabilized. And as, well, let me take a step back because Macaroni Grill was originally a carve out from Ignite. Yeah. And Ignite was based, based in Houston. And the new ownership that was carving it out was moving to Denver. Okay. So that's what I kind of picked up on. Like, you have to re, when you're moving, a, it's a carve out. You have to build systems, you have to rebuild the team, and you have to put process in place. Yeah. That's my definition of a platform. Yeah. So they were looking to me to do that. Yeah. And Mackinac to do that. So I quickly started piecing it all together. It's like, this could be the platform because I have to rebuild it yeah. and I get to build it from scratch the way I think is the best way to build it as opposed to going and acquiring something, inheriting problems and having to fix those problems. So we built the platform the way we thought was best. We knew the ownership group pointed out. We were very open about that discussion all along. We got that ownership group out. We were able to refinance, get them out of the out of the picture, out of the capital structure. Then Raven and I came in and took it over. Okay, and what was the problem with Macaroni Grill at the time? Very similar to a lot of legacy brands. I think there were a couple of things. One, it had been neglected as part of Ignite. Ignite had Joe's Crab Shack and it had a beer concept and that's what they were focused on. And, you know, it was just sidelined. Yeah. And I think the other piece was they tried to move, again, straight a little too far away from what made them special. You know, when I went in there, the one thing I kept asking, I, I, I love looking at consumer feedback and doing consumer, you know, research because I think that's what, you know, that, that's a, te- that's very telling about what needs to change. And the one thing that consumers consistently said was, you know, Mac- macaroni grill is where we go for a special occasion, right? If it's where we go for date night, it's where we went for prom, where we went for, you know, this celebration or that celebration. So it's always a special emotional connection that consumers had with Macaroni Grill. And that's something you can tap into. Yeah. When it's purely transactional, there's not much you can do. Yeah. You know, fine, lower price. <laughs> what else yeah. do you have? You know, yeah. increase portion sizes, huh. all of which just kills margin. So for us, it was how do we tap into that emotional connection and why did that, you know, where did that get lost? And then when you really dig into the business, it was the small things that just you know it was really cut you know death by a thousand cuts and things like macaroni grill was known for the honor wine the wine the jug of wine on the table you know and it was the honor system so you had a glass you mark you know you mark it on the table that's one glass two glasses you mark it on the table people cheated all the time it was factored into you know the cost trust me so (laughs) uh, that was not the issue but Someone did something, you know, this is where I say capital structures sometimes don't have a, 
360 view of the business. Someone made a decision somewhere to say, that, why are we doing this on a Y? And people are cheating the system. We're losing X hundred thousand dollars, pull the on a wine off. Yeah. So they did that. Well, people came in for that. That was something that, that was that emotional connection they had that made it special for them that was gone. Yeah. And you take that times, you know, a hundred different things that they did. So yeah. when we took it over, it was like, those are easy things for me to fix. Not only are they easy, it gives me great messaging yeah. to go out to, you know, a consumer base of, you know, millions of people and say, that was our e-club. Our email database was millions of people to say, guess what? Honor Wine is back. Guess what? This dish is back. You know, guess what? Opera singers are back. It's, it, I mean, you you have so much to work with. So that's really what I saw was they, were, they strayed too far away from what made them special, made them unique, became generic. We pull them back into, you know, this is what's special about it and own it. Don't don't run away from it, you know, own it and use it to your advantage. So that's what we were able to do. Turned it around, reversed the negative same store sales and had, you know, year over year same store sales growth, implemented our systems. So had massive margin improvement. And that's what gave us the ability to go do the Sullivan's acquisition. How many how many macaroni grill rest, uh, restaurants are there? There are about 60 macaroni grills. Is it is it all across the country or yeah. is it Sunbelt only? No, it's all across the country. Okay. And is there room to like grow that brand, like open more? Or is the goal just do really well out of those 60 stores? It's to do really well out of those 60 stores. And I think growth, we're really focused on growth in an asset life model internationally. Yeah. I think the franchise market internationally for a brand like Macaroni Grill is, is significant. Yeah. You know, American brands overseas do really well, especially in Asia and the Middle East. Okay. And this is an iconic brand. It's been around for yeah. 30 plus years. It's got massive brand awareness. You know, I went back and looked at one point, the total marketing dollars, just what I could quantify easily, total marketing dollars against this brand exclusively was north of 150 million. Wow. So $150 million pumped into, you know, media where you, family members, people just know the name. Yep. They might not have been there in a long time, but they know the name. Yep. And that brand awareness is, is, is important. And for us, I'm like, how do I take that? If that's an asset, if brand awareness is an asset, how do I monetize that asset? Yep. And the best way to do that is through international franchise. If you look at the historic financials, you'll see this uptick in 05 and 06. That's when I was at TCU. <laughs> that, that, that is that is where if I ever went on a first date or was dating a girl, Macaroni Grill was our, our first stop. Okay, so let's just chat a little bit about what it's like to own a big restaurant train during COVID. So you're kicking ass. You head into 2020. I'm sure your projections for 2020 were maybe might have actually beat projections. There's a lot of businesses that did really well, but what? When did you start knowing from your seat that something was up? So it's interesting. We were working on another acquisition at the beginning. It started chasing this deal in November of 2019. Okay, with a goal to close. I remember February 14th because it was my birthday. I was like, let's try and close before February 14th. And like every deal. It got pushed out a little bit. And then it was, you know, we're going to close at the end of March. And our core business, Sullivan's and Macroil, had turned around. They were doing great. They were, you know, just, they were well-oiled machines. 
So I was very focused on the acquisition. And one of the lenders, which is a massive, massive lender who was going to help finance the deal, they were the first ones to call me up. And they have an international worldwide perspective. Call me up and ask me about coronavirus. And full disclosure, I had no idea what they were even talking about. So I was like, well, you know, yeah, well, I'm sure we can na- navigate our way through that. <laughs> like, uh, it seems like it's pretty bad, you know, in parts of Asia. It's like, yeah, I'm like, but we'll be okay. And immediately get off my researching everything I can about coronavirus. And, you know, was a little worried, but wasn't all that concerned. And you fast forward a couple of weeks and they call back and I look, we have a global worldwide perspective. We have significant concerns about coronavirus and we just need to go pencils down for 30 days. That's when I knew, like this is, they're one of the most sophisticated lenders in the world. That's when I knew, and that's before it really hit us here. So that that was was, November? No, 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 that was in late February. Okay. Late February, might've been the first week of March. And that's when I knew, I'm like, there's something brewing that we're just not privy to. And I mean, we, you know, you heard, you're listening to the news and, but again, it was such a, it was so distant. It was like, that's in Asia. It's not going to happen to us here. But, you know, it became a reality that second week in March when, you know, the cases started to rise. I remember I was in Napa with my wife just, you know, for, for a long weekend. And I was wake up and I was watching the news. I'm like, this is going to be really bad. Yeah. And we had a flight back and I was like, I'm not flying. Like we rented a car and drove back to Southern California. And I was on the phone, you know, I think every minute of that call with the management team about what are we going to do? Yep. And thankfully we were positioned really well because off-premise was always something I believed in. Off-premise was something that we, you know, really honed in on over the years. So we had that trigger to pull. And, um, but I mean, that, that saved the business that kept us in play when a lot of companies didn't have off-premise, they didn't, especially not, you know, to the level that we did. So, I mean, it was controlled chaos. And every day there was something different. Every day, you know, especially when you have a national footprint, every jurisdiction, every city, every state is different. Yeah. It, it, things things would change. It was so fluid. So it really tested, to, you know, the silver lining here. And it's something I started to see probably in phase two of COVID, which was, you know, June, July, August to me, was the resiliency of our platform. And again, if I define platform as people, systems, and process, it was really put to the test because you had to be agile. You had to be able to move quickly. You had to have people you trusted to do their jobs. You had to be honest about every little nuance of every situation. The platform held up incredibly well. I mean, we did, we made so much change. And, you know, I, when I look at COVID, I always think about it in these three phases, March, April, May, complete chaos. Yeah. You, it was just survive. And my mantra was sketch it tomorrow. I don't want to talk about next week. I don't want to talk about, you know, the end of the week. All I want to do is get through today and get to tomorrow. And you just keep having that same mentality until, you know, you have some line of sight. So March, April, May, that's, that was, that was our focus. Then we got PPP money and then you had a little bit of breathing room. 
So June, July, August, September, like, all right, I can take a deep breath because I know we might have some liquidity and think about what we need to, like, how do I use this situation to our advantage, right? Was it Churchill that said, never let a good crisis go to waste? Mm-hmm. Um, how do I use this to our advantage? And that's when we really started to like focus on what do we need to do to change our business model, firm up our systems, add on to our systems, upgrade our systems. So when we come out of this, we're going to be ahead of everybody else. And that's really what phase two is about. And then phase three coming into the holidays was, all right, like how do we maximize and optimize what we've put in place in phase two? Yeah. So coming out of it, we, we're, in, we're in great shape now. We're focused on another acquisition as we speak, which I'm really excited about. But we've never been able to do that if we didn't have the right mindset within each phase to make sure, one, you survive and get through it, Two, you build a better business. Three, you optimize that business. And four is where we are today. We're, you know, for the most part out of it. And how do we take advantage while everyone else is still licking their wounds? All right, loaded question. What was maybe the best decisions you made through COVID? And also what was maybe the worst decision you made during COVID? Best decision I made was not hesitating to close restaurants that were borderline or unprofitable. Yep. And again, I, it comes down to it comes down to being humble and making the difficult decisions when you need to. I think a lot of people held on for too long, and you just burn you burn cash. Yep. And my mindset was, I can always go back to a landlord. I can always go open another restaurant. What I can do is go get cash back. Right. So best decision was being disciplined and pulling the trigger when it was a difficult decision to make. Worst decision through COVID (laughs) was deciding to live through COVID, but um, (laughs) I don't know if it was a worst decision, but it was with the management teams. It, It was a necessary decision with our management teams. I was determined not to furlough employees. Yeah. I was determined to keep one of the key pieces of our platform, which is our team, our greatest asset, to keep it intact. But that came at an expense. And that expense was, you know, oh, I think overworking our management teams. Yeah. And it was it was necessary because we so most times you couldn't even have hourly employees in the early days in the restaurants. Yeah. We I, I was like, you know, I can I can rehire hourly employees. I've got a great team. I can lose that team, but it put more of a burden on them. So sometimes they're working seven days a week. You know, it was it was really tough, and there was no way to give them much much relief. Okay, so now we're we're on the we're coming out. I don't know when we get to say we're out, but I would just <laughs> say we're out. <laughs> what are the things about the business that change that will stick, or are we just kind of going to go back to the way it was and then? I just want to talk about, uh, you just made the comment, like I can always hire back hourly workers, but right <laughs> now uh, it's very difficult to do that. So let's talk about what's nif- different about the business that will stay intact and maybe COVID was a blessing for, and then what's the state of kind of labor and things of that nature? Sure. Uh, one of the biggest benefits of COVID was it gave, leg- especially legacy concepts, this umbrella to make systemic changes that 
should have been made years ago. And one yeah. of those is just menu rationalization. You go to any major chain, you know, 80% of the revenue comes from 20% of the, of the items. But we were always too hesitant to take off a majority of the items that are slow movers because you don't want to upset any guests. Well, through COVID, you had the opportunity to do that. So if you yeah. go 90% of the restaurants you go into, if you look at that menu today versus that menu pre-COVID, I guarantee you it's a smaller menu today. So that's one of the changes that happened throughout the industry. And it's one of the changes that I think will stick for a long time because it helped improve profitability because not just from a food cost standpoint, but also from a labor standpoint, Right, just less prep, less, you know, less um, activity. So that's one thing that I've seen. And you know, thankfully for us, that was a project we were putting in place in December of 2019 to roll out at the end of Q1. So we had a head start as COVID hit, it was like pull the trigger, take off all these menu items that are not moving and let's go with a rationalized menu. So that's going to be very beneficial to the industry and margin for, for some time to come. Going to the labor issue, hourly labor right now is incredibly hard to, to, you know, staff. Part of me thinks it's, it's short term. Part of me thinks there's an aspect of it that's long term or longer term. You know, everyone obviously focuses on the stimulus and so on, which no question is, is causing massive issues. But eventually that's going to go away. You know, you, you can only give away free money for so long, you think. Once that goes away, I think things start to get back. But honestly, I just think there are a lot of people who've left the industry. Yeah. It's a difficult industry to be in. You're on your feet all the time. You're dealing with people all the time. And I think through COVID, people have broadened their expertise. And they've looked at, you know, wow, I don't want to be sidelined like that again. I want to be able to broaden my expertise. And I'm sitting on the couch getting free money. I might as well learn a different skill set. Yeah. And it's the small things, but they add up. It's like the Robin Hoods of the world. It's the crypto of the world. You know, a lot of these retail investors, they haven't seen a downturn. They haven't seen what it's like when, you know, the markets start to stumble. So right now for them, you hear this all the time. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm buying the dip. I'm like, <laughs> what? what? Yeah. You're buying? Okay, well... Since you're so knowledgeable about the dip, you know, you, I'm sure you'll do great <laughs> until it dips again. Yeah, so, and again. And again, and they haven't seen that. So yeah. they still have this, you know, they live in this this kind of world where it's going to always go up. And you hear the stories about, oh, you know, this guy made a million dollars trading crypto and they think they can be that next guy. I think part of it is, 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 is no question stimulus. That'll, that'll right size. That'll be fine. Uh, but I do think there's a longer term issue where there are people that have just left the industry and it's going to take a while to get them back. So again, don't mean to ask such a generic question, but like, what the hell do you do about it? Do you invest in like robots that are going to prepare food? Do you, you just kind of wait and see? You just have to be more efficient in your model. Yeah. Like you just, you, you have to be more efficient in your model. You have to change, you know, reservations and how you make reservations. You have to change how, you know, how, how long a wait is. You, you, at the end of the day, what, you have to, what you're trying to do is preserve the experience consumers have when they come into your restaurant. Yep. And labor is going to drive that. 
And the way you manage, you know, your labor is you're either more efficient or you scale back on how many people you can take in. Yeah. So there are instances where, you know, the restaurants that are closed, typically it would be open for lunch. We're closing for lunch because we need to preserve the hours to be able to allocate those hours to larger, you know, and more important day parts like, you know, weekend evenings. Yep. So that that's what that's what people are doing across the industry. You're just you're cutting out, you know, you're losing sales because you don't have the labor. So when do restaurants make the majority of their money on weekends and, and during the nighttime? Absolutely. All right. One more question kind of on restaurants, uh, which I found interesting when we were chatting. But you just kind of said private equity, maybe for the last few years, kind of leading into COVID was a little bit less interested in the restaurant industry. And now like every, your phone's ringing off the hook from private equity. People want to get in the industry. There's there's a lot there's a lot of interest in the industry. And I think it's a couple of things. One, there are value opportunities still. It's an interesting period because of this, you know, I kind of call the vaccine high where people are spending money. So restaurant comps are great and restaurants are talking about how everyone's coming back. You know, until last week when, we, or was it earlier this week, retail numbers came out and they were a lot softer than they were last month. So you're starting to see it's tapered down and normalized somewhat. But private equity sponsors are smart enough to understand that they do see it as an opportunity for a couple of reasons. One, there are value opportunities, but two, there is a growth story, right? With the way commercial real estate is, you can get very favorable leases. So if you have a brand and you have a management team and you have a platform that you believe in, like, all right, I know I, I trust this team and I trust this brand to be successful. I know I can go get favorable leases. I can grow this at a much faster pace, at a lower basis than I would have to, than I would otherwise be able to. Yeah. And there's just supply disruption. There's yeah. so many restaurants. I forget the last count, 100, 150,000 restaurants that have gone out of business permanently. So you combine those two, it screams opportunity, yeah. which is, you know, what a lot of the sponsors are focused on. Yeah. Oh man, that's fascinating. All right. So back to the comment that you made, you said, um, there are certain times where I see the best ROI on my time. And, uh, let's talk about kind of what you're doing in cannabis. Yeah. So cannabis, I knew nothing similar to timeshare in restaurants, knew nothing about the cannabis world. Yeah. Got introduced to the cannabis world by a very close friend of mine in December of 2019. And his vision was to build a cannabis beverage company. And it's like, Peter, I don't know what, you know, I don't know anything about cannabis. I know even less about cannabis beverage. So, but I was like, you know, I'm happy for you. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, Peter was, he, he was, he was amazing. And, his focus was, he's like, look, I see, and he, he, he lived in the private equity world his entire career. And um, he's like, I see a massive opportunity in the space for all these reasons. I've done my diligence. So it's like, you know, great, you should go for it. And he said, well, I, you know, I would love for you to partner with me on the cannabis stuff because I do think, he's like, he was also someone who knew what he was good at and yeah. knew what his weaknesses were. He's like, you know how to build businesses, you know how to structure businesses, you're you know, great from a strategic standpoint, that's where I could use the help. So I jumped into it with him. Um, we built we built a business. Um, we launched two months ago. 
Uh, it's been incredible. We're the only premium cannabis spirit on the market. The reception has been unbelievable. Focused on California right now. And when we built it out, you know, we were very intent on meeting a few different criteria. One was premium quality because there's a lot of stuff on the market that's just not. Yeah. Um, two, we wanted it to mimic alcohol and a cocktail. So everything from how fast do you feel it and to, you know, how fast does it kind of dissipate? How do you, what's the form in which you drink it? Do you drink it in a cocktail as, as a cocktail, as a spirit, et cetera? So premium quality cocktail form. We were, in, we were focused on health and wellness. So, you know, it's got two grams of sugar and less than 10 calories. Yeah. And we want it to be familiar. We wanted people, because I think a lot of things in cannabis are, is very intimidating uh, to the general population. We wanted this to be very familiar, very high end. So it's like going and buying you know, a bottle of Belvedere and keeping it on your bar cart. So we were able to hit all of that. And yeah, the reception's been, has been phenomenal. Can you just speak maybe some statistics? Because when you tell me this is the hard, highest ROI on your time, like how big is the industry and like how big is it? going to get in your, from your perspective? It, it's, I, I, I think it, the, the opportunity, I think has the opportunity to be much larger than the, than the alcohol industry. Wow. Um, which is what a $1.5 trillion industry. Wow. Um, because there's so many different ways to consume cannabis. Yeah. It's not just in a liquid form. Obviously it's the gummies. It's, you know, uh, to smoke it. It's the, the, the multiple different ways to consume it and buy products off of it. And we're still learning. Yeah. You know, the plant is an incredibly complex plant that has, it serves multiple purposes. It's not just you take it to, take, you know, you smoke or you have a drink to take the edge off. There are aspects of that plant that help with sleep, that help with pain, that help with so much that we're still discovering. Yeah. So I think when you look at that industry as a whole, I think it has immense potential. Um, some statistics that I think are interesting. 66% of Americans support the legalization of cannabis. I don't think we can get 66% of Americans to agree on anything. <laughs> so let alone you know, cannabis. So that to me, from a macro standpoint is interesting. Yeah. But then when you dial that down and say, all right, well, how does that translate into actual growth? The industry grew 46% in 2020. Um, it's a $17 billion industry. And we have, I think it's 16 states that are legal. Yeah. So if you just think about that, one from for the legalization, which we're seeing, New York's coming on board and you know, a bunch of East Coast states are coming on board, growth in le in, in uh legalization plus growth in consumer curiosity around the product, coupled with products like Pomos coming in the market, which are a lot more familiar that people aren't averse to trying. I think th the growth potential is, you know. We haven't even scratched the surface. Like if you had to say, how how soon are we before like it's in all 50 states and it's just like normal, uh, 10 years, 20 years? I, I think you see legalization in the next four, five years. Yeah. Federal legalization. Now, uh, states are going to continue to roll them out, right? Yeah. The tax revenues is incredible. So states are going to continue to roll them out, but I think federally you're still, you know, probably four or five years away. But the federal legalization actually doesn't doesn't hinder you know the growth 
prospects for the industry. Yeah, it's really on the state level. So yeah, but it, it's it's a fascinating space. The California market represents 4.5 billion off the 17 billion. It's the largest cannabis consuming market in the world. Yeah, not just the country in the world. You said something uh, in a conversation we had, something about like, you know, this whole digital generation of young people that spend all day on the computer or their phone, like you don't really get drunk and play video games, but you might, you know, have a nice, there's definitely kids or we're not even kids, but young people, they they smoke weed and play video games. Now you can like sip a great drink, play, it's a lot more kind of for the digital world is kind of the cannabis style than it is hard alcohol. For sure. I mean, it, it, it trans, it, it, it's, it's applicable to such a wide range, right? Because with the product that we have at Palmos, if you go to a dinner party, it's just like having a cocktail. Yeah. It can be totally social. You can hang out. It takes the edge off, but it doesn't, you know, make you just sit there on the couch in a, in a daze. So you're, you're, you're social, you're active. You're part of the conversation. Yeah. Conversely, you're sitting playing video games. You're not gonna, you know, sit there and, and drink a bunch of alcohol, but you could have a pomos and take the edge off, enjoy yourself, and still be still be, you know, functional. Yep. It's interesting. Forty-eight percent of cannabis consumers are millennials. And the second highest consuming population. Uh, demographic of the population is Gen X. Mm. So if you look at that age group, it's really from, you know, 30 to about 55. Yep. And then I think the boomer generation is still uncertain as to whether it's legal or not. So they're still <laughs> a little wary. But as that, you know, as it starts to get more mainstream, I think you're going to see the boomer generation come into it as well. Sorry, mom, but my mom started taking like a gummy for bed and it's, (laughs) It's, as soon as that happened, I was like, okay, the walls are coming down quick because my mom would have never been that person, but it helps her sleep. It helps her the whole deal. I I totally agree. The number of people that I know that consume cannabis that I never thought, never thought would consume cannabis is, is amazing. And it's for those reasons, like the end of the day, we all work hard. We all have responsibilities. We're all stressed out about something or the other. You want to be able to go home. You want to be able to hang out with friends and take the edge off, yeah. right? That's why you have a cocktail and it's a ritualistic thing. So for us, it's how do you create a product that helps take that edge off? But at the same time, it doesn't dull you or it doesn't impact you the next day. Yeah. So you can, you can have this cocktail. You can take a gummy. You take that edge off. The next morning you wake up, you're fresh, you slept really well. You know, it helps with body aches. You don't, you're not achy. You're ready to go. I love it. All right. Two more things on business and then we'll get to uh, some personal stuff and then go have a great lunch. But the cannabis industry has uh, gotten you interested in cannabis, not just for the company you're building, but investing in it. And without going into maybe what you're investing in, things of that nature. The thing that really stuck out to me was how you were thinking about raising capital. Yeah, uh, I was like under this club type of format. So can you just talk about the idea, why it made sense to you? I've, I've seen private equity a million times. I've never heard of this and it. I thought it was awesome. Yeah, for sure. You know, I've been talking about, I've been around private equity my entire career and I've seen, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. And the one thing 
having experience with Pomos is seeing how much opportunity there is in the cannabis space to invest. And that's for three reasons. One, there's absolutely a lack of capital Mm -hmm. because traditional private equity with the LP base they have, they cannot invest in cannabis. Traditional lenders can't invest in cannabis. So there's this void from a capital standpoint. So again, just being opportunistic and and being able to connect dots, it's like, all right, there's a cap, there's a capital void. There's, There's massive growth. And then the third piece is there are operators that are inexperienced, immature from a professional, from a business standpoint, and, you know, just don't have the operational expertise to scale and grow their businesses. Yep. So a group of friends of mine, and we invest in a bunch of stuff together, we were looking at this, we're like, you know, we could, we should be able to selectively invest in, in things in cannabis. Then it came down to like, how do you structure that? And you know, everyone talks about, you want to raise a fund, you want to do this. It's like, well, most LPs, what do most LPs hate? They hate management fees. Yeah. Right? So what we've talked about doing is like, you just, you have a, a club of investors. They get to, they get to look at deals. They get to opt in or out of a deal. Um, but but what, do, but what do they need to do to be able to give, be given the opportunity to look at deals? Yeah. The thought is they have a, administration fee okay initial initial fee a one-time fee to enter the club okay once you pay that fee you're in the club you get access to all the deal flow you can opt in and out of deals and it limits any continued cost to the lp uh, to the to the investor they have complete optionality whether they want in or out of that deal they have a trusted operating team that's focused on that deal so it gives them what they want. And then from a GP perspective, all the deals are not crossed. Each deal stands on its own. So it was a way to come up with a structure that was desirable to LPs, but also desirable to the GP. And it provides access to an industry that's, you know, significantly void of capital right now. And in theory, if you paid the fee up front and then you never invest in a deal it's kind of your loss for paying the fee to get in the club right and there yeah. has to be something to otherwise you're just a form of sponsor right yeah right so it has to be something that makes it worth it, it makes uh an lp look at the deal because they've already they've got some skin in the game okay i'm i'm going actually backwards before we get into the personal but i had written this down and the, the the platform the people system process and when you were talking about taking over macaroni grill you just said i get to do it how i want to do it Can you just shed like a little light on like what when you're thinking about building the platform and maybe literally from maybe that 60 to 90 days is is it the same playbook every time or do you look at each situation with a fresh set of eyes and like what's your definition? I know it's people system process, but how do you know you got your platform right? Like this is the one that you want to be on. It's it's slightly different every time, Mm -hmm. you know, the core pillars are the same. Yeah. But then how you structure that might be a little bit different. Yeah. And when I say I got to build it the way I wanted to, it's really got to build it the way the team wanted to. Right. Um, and understanding what's best for that business, what systems are best for that business, what which what type of person is best for what we have coming, you know, ahead of us. Cause I don't think you skill set is one thing. But personality is just as important and being able to hire the right person for at the right time based on what that business need is, is critical. Yeah. And that's something, you know, again, I keep going back to, I think people are 
the biggest asset in any business. I think any great company is built on the back of great people. And it's how do you identify the right people for the situation? Got it. You know, so that's really, the, the core pillars are the same. How you structure them are different based on what the exact need is. What's the difference between a system and a process? So sy- systems are the systems, right? The, 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 the software. The process is the controls and the discipline you have around being able to maximize the use of that system. Got it. It's the reporting, it's the accountability, it's it's the controls to make sure that you have everything dialed in the way you want to. And it's, an, and it's something you can replicate and you can scale. Okay. All right. A few personal ones and then we'll uh, bring it home. But you made a comment at a drink we had the other day. You just said, uh, you, I think it was something along the lines of like, you can think more freely once you've hit financial freedom. What do you mean by that? There's less pressure, right? There's, there's less pressure and you get the option to work and do things that you want to do with people you want to do it yep. with. I think a lot of times people are in situations where they have to do something, Yeah, which, you know, it, it, it is what it is. But once you have that financial freedom, you get to choose who you do business with. And I think being able to choose who you do business with and where you do business helps you be a lot more successful. What is something that or, that you see a lot of young folks get wrong early in their career journey or like a mindset that they should be shifting on uh, to kind of maybe open more doors for them as they're growing up? I think, and I, I talk to the young guys about this all the time, I think the biggest thing is just don't be fixated on money. Yeah. You know, it's somewhat of a cliche, but when you're young, money doesn't really matter. Yeah. You know, if you're making 10,000 more or 20,000 more, does that really matter yeah. in the grand scheme of things? It, it really doesn't. Yeah. And I think a lot of times, even this, especially the younger generation, it's very focused on, you know, am I getting the value? And they define value by money. Yeah. To me, it's get the experience. Just take, if you, you're in a situation where you can get experience, take as much of that experience because you'll be able to write your check in the future. What is the best advice uh, that you've been given uh, along the way? Maybe from the leader of Mackinac or maybe from somebody else? No, as the leader of Mackinac, I'll never forget. He's like, the, the, your greatest strength is knowing what you don't know. And that's something that's stuck with me for, for a long, long time. And it takes a lot to, yep. to do that because you have to be, you know, you have to be thoughtful about it. You have to be humble. And you have to be, you know, secure about being able to ask the question. Yeah. And it kind of dovetails into what for me, where it's really dovetailed into is surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Yeah. Because if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're captain where you're going. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. So, <laughs> so for me, it's always like surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and, you know, know what you don't know. Is there something that happened uh in your childhood, maybe it was like a single event or just something that your parents did or just something that like, had that not been a part of your life, you might not look at the world the way you look at it today. I don't know if there was a single event, but it was pretty consistent in, you know, growing up in Dubai, it was incredibly entrepreneurial because it, I, I like in, in certain <laughs> ways, it's like the cannabis industry. Right. Everyone's there. You're building something from scratch. Yeah. You're building an industry from scratch. They were building a country from scratch. So everyone was incredibly entrepreneurial. My, my parents, my parents' friends. So what you saw through that was massive creativity. 
creativity and just determination and hard work and you know consistency with that. Yeah, and um, that's something that's just been ingrained in me from 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 the get go. Yeah, love it. All right, last one. Is there a book or something that you've read? or listen to besides this podcast that has helped you out along the way? <laughs> uh, there are tons of books that I've bought that I intend on reading. Yeah. You're one of those too. <laughs> have of, lots yeah. of books. I have a, I've read a lot of legal documents. Yeah. Um, you but, said that. Let's talk about that for a second. You wrote, you wrote that back. You said, <laughs> I don't read a lot of books. I read legal documents all the time. Yeah. Why? You don't have somebody that reads them for you? I mean, absolutely. I mean, we have attorneys reading everything for us, but I'll read every legal doc document cover to cover. Really? Every word of every legal document cover to cover. Why? I mean, that's, that's your leverage in any deal. Yeah. I mean, to me, it, the intersection of, you know, what your documents say and business is where you're going to be able to be successful. Yeah. And I, I want to know every single thing, because I think a lot of people don't, and a lot gets missed, and then you don't know it until there's a problem. Yeah. For me, it's being able to make sure there's things in those documents that address any and every scenario that I can think of that could go wrong, that I know we have, you know, some sort of downside protection, or we know what we're getting into. How, how do you balance that, like, every situation with not freaking the other party out, where it's like, God dang. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely a balance yeah. and you have to, you have to be rational and commercial about it, but it's also being able to explain like, look, I, you know, I just want to make sure we address everything up front. Yeah. So down the road, if there is a problem, we know how we're dealing with it. Well, you come from a world where you've seen absolutely every problem that could imaginable. And I think happen. that's what's, that, you know, that's what's positioned me again, without Mackinac and without the experiences and all these other companies and seeing what they've done well and seeing what they've done badly. There's no way, you know, I'd be a smart investor or operator today. Yep. So <clears throat> being able to have, having seen all those issues helps you structure documents today. And nine times out of 10, most people, they don't even pick up on some of the changes. Yep. What's the best way for people to know more about you or find Pomos or how can they find you? Pomos got, a, got the website, the e-commerce platform. Find me. I'm always available. Yeah. You know, um, either on Mackinac or, or the, the restaurant side or or the cannabis side. It's a really exciting time. Yeah. I think the next three to five years is going to be pretty incredible. That's awesome, man. All right. We'll leave on a high note. Thank you so much again for coming and uh, sitting down with me. This was awesome. This was great, man. Thanks a lot. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.